So this morning, we continue in our series. This is week two. And remember last week, if you were with us, I said this series will take us many, many weeks well into the summer because we are going through the entire book of Mark, all 16 chapters. Today, for our second installment, I've titled my message, The Wonder of Jesus. The Wonder of Jesus. And today, we'll be in chapter 1, verses 14 to 45. Feel free to start making your way there. Before we read from God's Word, I thought I'd take a moment to take us back to last Sunday. Some of you were here last Sunday. Some of you may not have been here. Last Sunday, we introduced this book by saying that Mark presents his gospel as a three-act drama. Three-act drama. It's always nice to kind of structure a book, and so Mark does that nicely for us. And so in Act 1, we are in chapters 1 through 8a. That's Act 1. Chapters 1 through 8a. Act 1 takes place in Galilee. And in Act 1, in the first eight chapters, people see Jesus performing all these signs and wonders and miracles and healings, and they're amazed at what they see. So throughout the first eight chapters, you hear people asking a question. They ask a question, who is this Jesus? They see him performing all these miracles, and they ask what? Who is this Jesus? It takes place where? Galilee. Chapters 1 through 8a. Act 2 is chapters 8b to chapter 10. And in this act, the question is asked by not the people in general, but by the disciples. And the disciples ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And this act, Act 2, we call it on the way. On the way from where? Galilee. In Galilee, the people ask the question, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, the disciples ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And the reason why they ask that question, it's not only because they want to know for Jesus' sake, in essence, they're saying, well, whatever happens to Jesus, we have to be prepared to have that same thing happen to us. So that's why they ask, well, uh, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And what does it mean for us to follow him? That's Act 2, on the way from Galilee, and then Act 3, chapters 8, I'm sorry, chapters 11 to 16. And this takes place in Jerusalem. And the focal point of the third act is the paradox of Jesus becoming king. The paradox of Jesus becoming king. And so Act 1, chapters 1 through 8a, in Galilee, the people ask the question, what? Who is this Jesus? They're amazed. Act 2 is on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. Chapters 8b to 
to 10. And the disciples ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And then Acts 3 takes place in Jerusalem, chapters 11 through 16. And the focal point is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And last week I shared with you the takeaway for the entire book. Remember I said, I know it's unusual. I'm going to give you the takeaway at the beginning. Usually you wait till the end. But the takeaway is something we could take away every week during this series. And the takeaway is this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness. If you want to be great, then right here is your takeaway. Serving others like the Savior. Jesus said that he didn't come to be served, right? He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So with that in mind now, we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 1. I'll read to you verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Last Sunday, we were introduced to John the Baptist. And in verse 14, it says, After John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison. John's ministry was a radical ministry. And the reason why I say it was radical is this. Most people who set out to do something, to build their own business, to gain a following, they do it kind of for their own benefit, their own fame, their own glory. But every single thing that John the Baptist did, he did for somebody else. I mean, think about how radical that is. Did you know that John the Baptist had his own disciples? He had his own following. He had a powerful preaching ministry. And for most leaders, that would be like an ego booster. Everywhere John the Baptist went, people followed him. But everything John the Baptist did was for somebody else. He was simply the forerunner. He knew that one day he would give it all up for somebody else. He went to prison. But not only did he go to a prison, he eventually gave his life for Jesus. Now, it's interesting here because Mark, he just states it so matter-of-factly. He says, oh, after John went to prison. But that's it. But as we learned from last week, Mark's intent is to give us as concise a summary of Jesus' ministry. That's why Mark's gospel is the shortest of all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark's is the shortest. And so after Jesus made his way to Galilee, he proclaimed, the kingdom of God has come near. I want you to focus in on that term, kingdom of God. This is an important term throughout the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you'll often hear the term kingdom of God or another term, kingdom of heaven. Those are interchangeable terms. Many people, when they heard Jesus proclaim, the kingdom of God has come near. You know what they did? They rallied behind him. They got excited because they thought, you know what? Our king has come to establish his political kingdom. 
They thought Jesus arrived on the scene and he would lead a political revolt against the oppressing government. But little did they know that Jesus was not talking about a political kingdom. You see, people, they were ready to enlist in his revolution. But the only way that we can enlist in Jesus' kingdom is to believe the good news. That's what he came to preach. Let's continue on in verses 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So, in this passage, we are introduced to the first four disciples that Jesus calls. You have Simon and his brother Andrew. And then you have another pair of brothers, James and John. But here's what I want you to know. We read here that Jesus said, come, follow me. And they dropped everything to follow him. But did you know that this was not their first encounter with Jesus? They didn't go, oh, who's this stranger saying, come, let's just drop our nets and go. This was not their first encounter. Remember, Mark is giving us kind of a concise history. These brothers had actually met Jesus prior to this encounter. And John's gospel gives us that description. So I invite you to turn to the gospel of John now. You can keep your place here in Mark. We'll come back to it. But go to John chapter 1 verses 35 to 40. And I'm going to give you the backdrop to Mark's account. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 40. Before I start reading, I want to let you know this. We're going to be talking about two different men by the name of John. So it's going to be a little confusing, okay? It's like on our staff, there are two Tims, all right? There's me and there's Tim Callahan, my friend, all right? And so it can be a little confusing. But we are now in the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John. And he writes this in verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and who had followed Jesus. Let's pause there. 
In this passage, we're told that John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, Andrew and, well, the other disciple is not named. But if you know who wrote the Gospel of John, that gives us a clue. You see, John the Apostle, he never names himself in his Gospel. He always talks about himself indirectly. Toward the end of the Gospel, he says, oh, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's talking about himself. <laughs> that's pretty cool, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's, uh, that's me. Here, John the Apostle is writing this, this account. He doesn't name himself, but he is the other disciple. So John the Apostle and Andrew were originally disciples of whom? John the Baptist. They're following their leader, and John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God. What John the Baptist is essentially saying is, Disciples, you're going to leave me, and you're going to go with him. I'm only his forerunner. Think about how amazing that ministry is. Today, people hold on to their trade secrets. They want to be successful. They don't want to give their secrets away. If they do, they want to sell it through seminars and conferences and books and everything else. But John the Baptist knew that one day he would give up his ministry. And so John the Apostle and Andrew, the two of them start to follow Jesus. And at one point, Jesus turns around and he says, what do you want? He doesn't say, what do you want? Give me some space. Why are you following me? Jesus, he turns around and basically he's inviting them to express why they're following him. What do you want? That's a phrase that we're all familiar with. What do you want? In fact, I'll say this. What do you want is probably one of the, if not the most asked questions in life. After we're done here in this service, we'll all be out on the patio. You'll be there with your friends and loved ones, and you're going to ask each other, what do you want to eat for lunch? And then you'll proceed to stay there for 30 minutes, try to decide where you're going to go. What do you want to eat for lunch? Young parents, those we dedicated just up here, and any parent who was at one time a young parent, we've asked ourselves that question. Actually, we've asked our little kids that question, right? And so you stare them in the face. If you have a crying child turning red in the face, staring at you, you're like, what do you want? Are you hungry? Do you have a full diaper? Are you constipated? <laughs> what do you want? Help me, Lord. <clears throat> We've all been there. What do you want? The thing is, that question, it just gets more complicated as you get older. It becomes more philosophical, right? What do you want to do when you grow up? College students often get asked that question, what do you want to do 
when you graduate? I don't know. But graduation's only one week away. I don't know. And by the way, that's okay. That is quite okay, college students. And it's okay that you don't know at that stage in life. Some people get to that middle age and they often have a midlife crisis. Hmm. My life is not really what I want it to be. What do I really want in life? It's a difficult question. It's a question that really means, what are you seeking? And so when Andrew and John followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and said, what do you want? He was really asking them, what are you seeking in life? And the answer that they give is very cautious. They say, Jesus, Rabbi, where are you staying? And commentators think that it was Andrew who asked this question because Andrew was this very cautious, kind of uh, apprehensive, timid kind of man. Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus' response clearly tells us that he understood Andrew and his personality. Jesus says, come. Come and see. Find out for yourself. Make up your own mind. I'm not going to twist your arm. Just come. So they went. Andrew and John went with Jesus. They spent the entire day with him. They were so captivated by Jesus' teaching. They were so gripped by what they saw. They didn't want to leave. But when they finally left, here's what they did. Andrew ran home to his brother, Simon, and told his brother all about Jesus. John ran home to his brother, James, and told him all about Jesus. So do you see, that is the backdrop to Mark's account. So when we go back to Mark chapter 1, and when Mark tells us Jesus sees Simon and Andrew in the boat, he already knows them. They've already gotten to know Jesus. And when he says, come, follow me, they drop everything because they've already spent time with Jesus. And they were eager to drop everything. And then Jesus says the same thing to James and John, come, follow me. So these two sets of brothers become four of the first disciples of Jesus. That's why Mark chapter 1, we see it as their official calling to be disciples. In John's account, they were just introduced to Jesus. Here in Mark's account, they have become his disciples. Now, the very fact that Jesus called Simon and Andrew and James and John, that should encourage us. You know why? Because these were flawed men. These were men with blemishes, with imperfections. They were very flawed. Peter, Simon Peter would eventually turn his back on Jesus. He would deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. James and John, these brothers, they had, well, let's call it fiery personalities. 
Some might say they had anger issues. They were ready to battle for Jesus. They were emotional. All right, church, uh, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know who you are right now, okay? But I'm going to ask you a couple questions. All right, so keep your hands down. But the first question is this. Anybody here impulsive? Don't raise your hand, okay? Like, like you, you don't think before you act, or you don't think before you speak. You just, you just, ugh. You know, Peter often got into trouble because he just didn't think before he spoke or acted. He was very impulsive. Some of, are you familiar with that phrase? Oh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Have you heard that phrase? It's like, you know, you just do it and then deal with the consequences that later on, right? Oh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. So some people operate that way. They say, you know, I'm just going to do it and then deal with the consequences. They don't want to think about it. Others are very indecisive. I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't decide. Vanilla, chocolate, I can't decide. Strawberry, I can't decide. All right, thank you, Neapolitan. And so <laughs> people are so indecisive sometimes. Now, please do not raise your hand here on this one. But again, the question is this. Anybody here suffer or struggle with anger issues. Right? I imagine that hits home to a lot of people. Anybody have anger issues? The encouragement is this. When Mark gives us this account of these two sets of brothers being called, the encouragement is this. Jesus calls flawed people to follow him. He didn't say to Simon and Andrew, he didn't say to John and James, okay, finish your degree first. Get a degree in theology and then come follow me. He didn't say, uh, spend 10 years building up your resume and then follow me. He took these very rough around the edges men and said, you're going to change the world with me. You're going to change the course of history with me. And that, my friends, ought to bring us encouragement. Because he, he calls flawed people. You know why I know he calls flawed people? Well, he, he called you. <laughs> and he called me. If he calls us, then he calls flawed people. Now, of course, Jesus does not want us to stay complacent in our flawed conditions. It's important to know that. The whole idea of discipleship is to become more like Jesus. If we are not careful, we can easily turn our flaws into a badge of honor. And allow me to explain what I mean by that. It can be tempting for us to take pride in our flaws. Hey, this is the real me. This is a raw me. Unfiltered. This is the unfiltered me. Take it or leave it. That, though, is not God's desire for us. Rather, God's desire is for us to say, 
God, I am so undeserving of your mercy. Thank you for saving me. God, would you change me daily so that my life would look more like Jesus' life? I'm not there. It may take me many, many years, God, but I don't want to stay complacent. I want to be more like Jesus every day. God, would you help me to control my tongue because I cannot on my own. God, would you help me to be confident in you because I seem to waver at times. God, help me to love my family more because sometimes I just don't. And so the idea of discipleship is that we are saved by God's mercy and his grace and God wants us to grow in his grace and become more like Jesus. Peter and Andrew, James and John, they would know what it meant to grow. You see, they were amongst those disciples who in Act 2, they asked the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? They would learn that. Let's continue on. In verses 21 and 22, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Here we see the word synagogue. And the word synagogue is important for us to know because the synagogue was a very important place in the life of the Jewish community. The, the whole structure of the synagogue, it came to be during the exile in Babylon after the temple had been destroyed. And so the synagogue started to form as a place where God's people could go and gather and worship God and hear the reading of Scripture and to pray to God. So that is why when you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus going to synagogues regularly because the synagogues would invite rabbis to come and to teach. So when a rabbi went to one city, that synagogue would say, hey, come, teach us. Later on, the Apostle Paul, you see him in many synagogues because these teachers would go and teach. And so Jesus taught in these synagogues, and the people were blown away. They were amazed, so much so that they asked the question, who is this Jesus? His teaching is like nothing we've ever heard before. Imagine being in that synagogue. Okay, imagine being here in Diamond Bar at Ephraim Church and Jesus were on the stage. I mean, I, I, would, be, I would just be blown away. I, I, don't know, I don't know what I would do, okay? I'd bring my pen for an autograph. I, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> I'd be speechless. All I'd say is, who is this man? So that's this Jesus as he traveled from synagogue to synagogue. And so allow me now to kind of summarize uh, the next several verses for you. Not only are the people amazed 
at his teaching. They witness him performing miracles. He heals people. He casts out impure spirits. A man was possessed by an impure spirit, and Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of him. And so the people saw this. Wow, he casts out demons. Who is this Jesus? So news about him began to spread. So you can imagine, he became very popular. So Jesus went with James and John, the two brothers, sons of Zebedee. The three of them made their way to the home of Simon and Andrew, two brothers. And at that home, Simon's mother-in-law. By the way, did you know that Simon Peter was married? We don't often think about that, but it tells us that his mother-in-law was struck with a fever. Jesus showed compassion on Peter's mother-in-law. He healed her. And you know what she did? The minute the fever left, she started waiting on Jesus. I mean, that's what, like, that's what moms do, right? That's what grandmas do. I mean, it's not every day that the uh, Messiah comes to your house. But Jesus was like, he was so busy because what happened was people followed him to Andrew and Peter's house. And these people brought their loved ones who were sick, who were possessed by impure spirits. And Jesus, he ministered to them well into the evening. And it got so tiring for Jesus. Remember we said last week that Jesus, he was a human like we are, so he got tired. He got hungry. I doubt he even took a break to eat dinner. He was so compassionately healing people. It went way into the night. But look at what verse 35 says in Mark chapter 1. This is profound. Okay, so after a long night of healing and performing miracles and teaching, 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. It says, very early in the morning while it was still dark. Some of you, when you woke up this morning, wasn't it still dark? Oh, by the way, if you're here for the 9 a.m. service, <laughs> some of you got that. And so... I was, I was uh, having fun with our 9 a.m. service. I was like, thank you, 9 a.m. service, for waking up on this day of all the days, the toughest day, and to be here. I, I just love I just loved seeing all of you here on this Sunday. So whether you're here for the 9 a.m. service or the 1045 service, uh, a, a special welcome to all of you. But it says here, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, after a long night, and my guess is this, that Jesus, Jesus must have gotten maybe a couple hours of sleep. But early in the morning, here's what he does. He goes off by himself to a solitary place to be with his heavenly Father. You know, the rest of this chapter, from verses 36 to 45, it continues to describe Jesus' ministry of teaching, of healing, of casting out demons. But what I'd like to do is this. Just for the next few minutes as we wrap all this up, I want to focus our attention on verse 35. At the very core, the word disciple, it means follower or learner. 
or student. We just read verse 35. Of all the things that we can learn from Jesus, nothing, and I mean nothing, is greater than the example he set for us in verse 35. Nothing is greater. The prayer life of Jesus is quite humbling. I thought much about that this past week. If the Bible never once mentioned the fact that Jesus spent time with his Heavenly Father in prayer, we would know how important prayer is, right? We would. Even if the Bible never mentioned Jesus praying, we know that there are many other Bible passages that talk about the importance of prayer. So we would know how important prayer is. In fact, I'll say this. If the Bible never talked about how Jesus prayed, some people might not even think that he had to pray. I mean, because after all, I mean, he's the second person of the triune God, right? So let's think about this. If the Bible never mentioned that Jesus prayed, it's quite possible and probably okay if people think, well, he didn't have to pray. He didn't pray. And yet, the very fact that Jesus is often found going off to a solitary place to pray it's really the most humbling thing we could read. I have a question for you that I want to see your hand if this applies to you. Okay. Who here would like to be more like Jesus? Think about that question. Who would like to be more like Jesus? If we want to be more like Jesus, then the best starting point is to follow his prayer life. Yes, he was compassionate. Yes, he was kind. Yes, he was powerful. Yes, he was a wonderful teacher. But if we want to be more like Jesus, there is no better starting point than to look to his prayer life. And I got to tell you, church, I share that knowing how much I need to grow in my prayer life. Think about Jesus performing all those miracles the night before, and the first thing he does is go away to pray. Remember, whenever it came to himself, he always operated within the limits of his humanity. That's why he had to go to prayer to seek his Father's will. I have an encouragement for all of us. You might call it a challenge. Maybe some of you might be up for this challenge. I saw all your hands. You saw mine. We want to be more like Jesus. Maybe this week, one way to be more like Jesus is, and maybe a few of you might take me up on this challenge, Take a day this week, one of the next seven days, and spend 30 minutes of uninterrupted prayer, but outside of your normal environment. Now, maybe you pray in a certain room, that's wonderful. Maybe you pray in your car with your eyes open, that's great. Okay? But 
maybe this week, just take one day, if you're up to this challenge, and say, today I'm going to maybe drive to the lake, to the park, to the mountain, to the beach, somewhere, and say, for 30 minutes, uninterrupted, I'm going to turn my phone off, I'm going to put everything away, and spend 30 minutes of uninterrupted time in prayer. And I have to believe this, that after those 30 minutes, we will be more like Jesus. For you overachievers, maybe an hour, okay? So if you want extra credit, come to me next week. He said, I did an hour, okay? But 30 minutes can be a long time with your phone off. Parents, make sure you, you take turns. Don't, you, don't both keep your phone off, okay, if you have little ones, okay? It's like, honey, it's my turn, okay? But maybe some of us might take that challenge to be more like Jesus. May we all be more like Jesus this coming week. I certainly need to do that. And there's no better way than to do what he did and spend time in a solitary place with our Heavenly Father. Would you bow with me? Father, maybe some here right now are thinking about what day that might be. Lord, we've heard from your word. We've seen the prayer life of Jesus. He got up really early while it was still dark to go and commune with you. So help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus because you know we need to be more like Jesus. So thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for this wonderful journey you put us on. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.